Welcome to The Spin Cycle. I'm Maggie Sarachek. And I'm Abby Greenberg. And together we are the Anxiety Sisters. Hi, Anxiety Sisters. Welcome to our show. Today's guest is Dr. Ellen Vora, a board-certified holistic psychiatrist, acupuncturist, and yoga teacher who takes a functional medicine approach to mental health, which means that she considers the whole person and addresses fundamental imbalances at the root of all of our conditions. Her new book, The Anatomy of Anxiety, is a fascinating read, which offers a new view of anxiety and how to manage it. And we won't keep you in suspense. She posits that anxiety is not an ending point or a final diagnosis, but instead a starting point of an exploration into what the anxiety is telling you about your body. In other words, anxiety is not what's wrong with you. It's evidence that something else is wrong. We learned so much from this book, and we are so excited to discuss it with her. Welcome, Dr. Vora. Thank you so much for being here. Abby, Maggie, thank you so much for having me here. Oh, we're so excited. The first thing is, could you tell us a little bit about what a holistic psychiatrist is? Because Abs and I together have been to many, many psychiatrists, and we have yet to meet a holistic psychiatrist. So we're so excited to hear more about this. Oh, I'm not even sure I have a good answer to that question. It's somewhat of a made up term, but it's, it's a, you could think of me as a weird psychiatrist, but basically rather than just thinking about mental health from the neck up, rather than only thinking about mental health as a genetically determined chemical imbalance that you know we'll use medication or different kinds of therapy, I'm thinking about the full portrait of my patients' bodies and lives. So I'm thinking about mental health as certainly our genes play a role, epigenetics play a role. I'm also thinking about inflammation and gut health and nutrition and sleep, but then our fundamental human needs as well, community and purpose and connection to nature and play and creativity. And there's not a whole lot going on in our lives that's not relevant to our mental health. So um, basically a holistic psychiatrist is, is somebody who needs two hours with a patient. Wow. Oh my God, you need to, can you please go to every medical school in the West and teach all the classes? <laughs> because I think if our health system were more holistic, things would be very different for a lot of us. I agree. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal journey with anxiety and how you came to functional medicine? Um, here, let's, let's, I'll attempt the short version. Okay. <laughs> so it can be long too. It's okay. Um, anxiety was actually, and this is something that's always on everyone's mind when they come to my book. It's like, did she struggle with anxiety? You know, does she have that most important credential of knowing what it feels like on the inside? I feel like I have that credential with so much of what I treat and work with, but I'll be the first to admit anxiety was never my most prominent symptom, which Mm -hmm. is not to say I'm a complete stranger to it, but I was a mess in a number of different ways. Um, and I was more so depressed, um, couldn't focus, was occasionally anxious. And my body was a broken machine. Um, this was all in my twenties. And so I was, um, had acne, had ocular migraines, had joint pain and rashes, and I couldn't poop to save my life and had irregular periods and polycystic ovary syndrome, that whole combo. And so things were really not working in my physical health and my mental health. And all of this happened alongside my medical training, 
where I was being, you know, kind of inducted into the world of you're a physician and you know how to help other people get well. And I was a little bit in a crisis because I was like, well, I cannot keep myself well. And I think I'm doing everything seemingly right. And I wasn't really convinced that I was helping my patients truly thrive. I could see that they were getting masterfully medicated. We were patching up some things, but I would see them walk out of my office and out into their lives. And I wasn't convinced that they were really thriving, that they were really leading fulfilling lives. So I felt that like there was room for improvement. So all of this was happening in parallel and it was a very inefficient journey for me to figure out how do I get my own body into balance? How can I get myself feeling well? How can I help my patients better? And that required really looking outside of allopathic medicine and all of these different so-called alternative or soft science ways of thinking about how to support human health they far outclassed what I was being taught in medical school. And, and that's how I got myself well and my patients better served. And at that point, I was just, you know, I'm just a believer at this point. It's so many people who find themselves in a holistic approach. It's, it's usually that they went through their own struggle and found that that was what helped them. I heard you, um, I don't know if it was a podcast or a, a YouTube show, but I heard you talking to a gentleman, you called yourself a witch. And I thought that was great because I realized that in Western medicine, that's probably how your philosophy would be interpreted as sort of witch doctory, right? Because, you know, and, and Mags and I have really done a lot of research into Eastern medicine and have done a lot of Eastern modalities in our own anxiety journeys. So we are true believers in, in holistic thinking. But it's amazing how much pushback we've even had from guests of ours who are even celebrity Western physicians. So I'm taken with your perspective yeah. because I, th I think that I think it's the answer. Is that crazy yes. to say that? I'm with you on that. I mean, I think we're in an interesting moment. And this actually draws on a lot of different topics. This draws on internalized misogyny and intuition, and it draws on our allopathic medical system. I use the term witch um, a little bit earnestly and a little bit tongue in cheek. Um, I really do think of myself that way and call myself that and proudly. Um, but I say it a little bit for the shock value because I'm, I'm trying to make a point, which is that we're thinking about things. We are a product of an imbalanced mm -hmm. society where we value the masculine aspect, the objective, um, the rational, what can be measured and proven. And I'm not here to say that that's not valuable. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm really, I'm a scientist. I'm in favor of the objectively measurable, um, but it's not the whole story. And I think it should exist in dynamic equilibrium with the intuitive, with the um, things that we can sense, but we can't necessarily point to or prove. And for the longest time, I silenced that in myself. I intuited that I, I needed to be rational, to be accepted in the boys club, to be thought of as smart. And then it took me, it was in my 30s that I started to realize I've been ignoring this internal compass that could actually really help. And so I came to embrace my intuition. I came to think of myself as a witch. And I'm so grateful to finally be able to embrace that part of myself and mm -hmm. to let it steer my treatment with patients. I think I'm much more valuable to my patients when I can tap in to intuitive downloads with them. And I certainly use it as a compass in my just navigating the vagaries of my own life. You know, it's, it's interesting because even science is not objective, like forget how they're funded and all that, but even how they're framed and what they, what is taken out of a study is really 
like that whole idea of science is objective is, is something that you can really challenge in many ways. I spent a year um, doing a Doris Duke Clinical Research Fellowship where I worked in a neuroscience lab at Columbia um, doing PET scans, of, you know, brain imaging. And this was like high ticket, really good quality research. This was as good as it gets, in, at least in the field of psychiatry. And I have so much respect for my PIs, everyone working there. These are brilliant physician scientists. Mm-hmm. And truth is is shiftier than we think. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, at the extremes of physics, it gets kind of like poetry and spirituality pretty quickly. And I think that the same is true when we're, when we're really trying to know things, it's incredibly difficult. And it's not to say there aren't trends, there are patterns, there are things that are true, but it's so hard to really know and for that to be generally applicable um, and, and I think, you know, we're all trying to just help. We're trying to help relieve human suffering, but we want to be really careful uh, when we think we know how to do that for others. Yes. Among the many things that we loved about your book is your commentary about the problems with diagnostic labels. And of course, they're necessary in terms of the, the flawed system that's set up right now for insurance and other things. But we agree with you that sometimes they're more problematic than helpful because they tend to be shrinking people's worlds. Can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I have a six-year-old daughter and every Friday she's like, today's opposite day and it's so annoying, but um, <laughs> it just gives her an excuse to tell me that she hates me. <laughs> I think that what I realize is that in my work with patients, every day is kind of opposite day. I'm I'm always coming at it almost from the opposite perspective of where they're currently entrenched. So if someone feels like their mental health struggles are are sort of like a failing on some level, grounding it in a diagnosis saying like the disease model of mental health. I find that that's very therapeutic for someone Mm -hmm. to be like, Oh, thank God. My symptoms are part of a constellation of symptoms that are consistent with this label. And I'm not alone. And people have studied this and that can be so helpful and it can be so limiting. And so when my patients are now at this point, just they identify with their diagnosis. It is one in the same with their identity. It doesn't leave a lot of room for, um, transformation. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't deny these very real biologically based illnesses, you know, there, there's neurologic differences there, there's a very material basis to them. And I think that we can make a lot of impact through things like diet and lifestyle, which I know makes me a witch, but I think that, um, in every sense of that word, and but a good so, witch, a good and, witch, sometimes. And, <laughs> Um, when I'm trying to take away someone's coffee, it's like, ah, bad witch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you're trying to take away my coffee, then you are definitely not a good witch. <laughs> yeah, so we, we can just close for today if we need to. <laughs> but, um, but I think that um, we can make an impact. And so I, I find that just like truth is shifty, I find diagnoses can sometimes be shifty. I've had patients who went decades of their life identifying with a diagnosis like anxiety. And when we got them off of birth control, uninflamed, nourished, whatever was the root cause in their case, some of my patients have entirely walked away from their diagnoses. So sometimes it's 
it's absolutely part of someone's makeup and it's not going anywhere. And sometimes it's actually a manifestation of some other state of imbalance. And so we just can't, um, we can't think of these labels as fixed. It's really interesting too, because I have a child diagnosed with autism. And I think sometimes people also make assumptions about him, like, oh, he he must have a lot of trouble when you change plans or whatever, which isn't true. But there's all these assumptions that are made around a diagnosis that are often pretty limiting to the person rather than being a starting point to ask questions. Yeah, it can become a straitjacket. This was true of me too. I remember in, in medical school, I self-diagnosed myself as having dysthymia. <laughs> and so the chronic low-grade mood. And I made my life smaller around it. It's mm. like, should I go to that weekend away with friends? No, no, I have dysthymia. I probably shouldn't, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, I think that um, sometimes it's really grounding and helpful. And sometimes it actually suppresses our creativity and, and our ability to think about ourselves as um, capable. And this, of course, is really impactful with anxiety treatment where so much of the time, exactly the opposite of what we want to do, the sort of exposure response prevention, like to, to, kind of do it anyway, even mm-hmm. though it makes us anxious is the treatment and to avoid yes. it is what reinforces the anxiety. And I think that sometimes the diagnoses keep us stuck in the mindset of, um, I cannot do that because of my anxiety. Anxious is part of being a human being. And the most important thing in dealing with anxiety or anything for that matter is agency. You know, if you have anxiety, that's fine, but the anxiety is not allowed to drive. I listened to an episode of yours about OCD and it's been rattling around my brain ever since then. Agency is so critical. And I think um, part of that OCD idea is the helplessness. Mm-hmm. And I think we're really at a moment right now, especially you know with the pandemic, where helplessness is such an important thing to examine. Um, because, you know, we're living through a pandemic that can be exacerbating to some people's anxiety. Um, that could be exacerbating to anybody, even if they don't identify with yes. you know, feeling anxious. Yes. And, and I've been lecturing in corporate wellness settings this whole time about it. And in somewhat of a almost politically fraught way, my message has been, yes, the risks and the fear, it's all very real. It's very justifiable. And we have agency. We are not helpless. There are things we can do to support our immune system, to support our bodies, so that if and when we face this virus, we are as strong as we can be. And that can come across as somewhat of an ableist message. And I'm really careful to say, you know, there's no guarantees here. And it's just, we do the best we can for ourselves. If that means a little bit more prioritizing sleep or sunshine or supplementing with vitamin C, it's whatever we can manage to support our immunity so that we don't feel helpless in the face of a big challenge. I'm so glad you brought up the pandemic because um, it's certainly not surprising that anxiety levels and depression levels have skyrocketed since the beginning of the pandemic. You have a really interesting take on why this increase is actually good news for anxiety sufferers. I wonder if you could talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's not actually totally good news. Right? I don't want more people <laughs> suffering, but it just, it speaks to the fact that we've really been indoctrinated with this idea of um, that our mental health issues are genetic and therefore our destiny. And the fact of the matter is genes don't change quickly. 
but that's where environment comes in. When you see a population going from being a certain amount anxious to precipitously more anxious, that did not tell us that the genes changed in that population and now everyone has a genetic destiny of being anxious. And that tells us that the environmental pressures changed. And it's no wonder we're so anxious. Look around us. Our environmental pressures are bananagrams. And, you know, everything from the very real stressors geopolitically and with the pandemic to the sensationalized amplified messaging as a result of the attention economy, where our media and news networks have realized that they get more clicks and more ad revenue when they instill um, sensationalized fear messaging. So, you know, for banal reasons, because we're living in the attention economy and our attention is the commodity that smart companies are competing for, we're being bathed in fear messaging and controversy. And so that's making us more afraid. And then you add to that all of the ways our fundamental human needs aren't being met in modern life. We don't live in community. We don't have connection to nature. We are sometimes working out of alignment with our purpose. We don't have room left in our days for connecting to creativity and having those kinds of outlets. We are, many of us, on some kind of rebellion away from organized religion. And so we've sort of lost our habit of gathering in community to seek and ask the bigger questions. So many of us have not given ourselves permission to ask ourselves what feels true, what what gives us purpose and meaning in our lives. And then there's the physical reality. And we're just very inflamed and malnourished and sleep deprived in modern life. So all of this together is contributing to this precipitous rise in anxiety levels. It's not genetic. It's not a destiny. There's actually quite a lot that we can do about it. Well, that is good news, right? Because if agency is so powerful in managing anxiety, then finding out that there's something, it's not like, oh, well, it's my genetics, so I can't do anything. I'm just going to be this way. I think it's empowering to say, well, there's things we can do. We might not like all the things that we can do, but there are things that we can do to improve the situation. And, and I agree. It's, it's empowering and it gives us hope. And, you know, we don't like all the things we have to do, but we don't have to do all the things. If going mm-hmm. off of coffee is not the thing you want to do, then that doesn't have to be your path. You know, for, for one person, it could be getting off of coffee. For another person, it's stabilizing blood sugar. And for a third person, it could be just not bringing the phone into the bedroom or prioritizing community in their lives. Mm. It's kind of interesting that in our community, we've had two responses. We've had this big increase in people coming into the community and and saying, this is the first time, but now I'm so anxious, I can't even breathe, you know, but I, I never understood this before, but now I understand it. And then we definitely have a segment of people who've lived with anxiety for a long time and have felt some relief in the pandemic because they weren't expected to be out and about and sort of doing normal, you know, the the typical pre-pandemic kind of things. And there was like a little bit of a reprieve from all the pressure. Thousand percent. It's opposite day. Yeah. I've seen the same thing in my practice. There was this other phenomenon that I witnessed was that, and I've looked back at my notes in January of 2020, I would say half, three quarters of my practice were telling me, I just feel this impending sense of doom. And I was sitting there scratching my head being like, I don't know. (laughs) And, and then of course, here we are. And what it occurred to me is that a lot of my patients are much witchier than I am. Mm. They were attuned to something. And Mm -hmm. this is, you know, I get into this late in my book around the idea that 
you know, we have this idea that people that are sensitive are this burden, or it's sort of like you want to tell them, like, don't be so sensitive, pull yourself mm-hmm. together. I think we need every kind of human. We need the even killed people. Thank God for them. We need someone to fly the plane. But we also, as a collective, need our anxious folks because mm-hmm. they're here in a prophetic capacity. They are sensing what's out of sight on the horizon. And if we slow down and, and stop shaming them and actually listen to what they have to say, it can wake us all up just in time. I think they're here to help that is the collective. Once again, could you please teach every class in every medical school in this entire world, please? Because that we've is- been, calling high, been called highly sensitive people our whole lives and shamed for it. And Mags and I are always telling our community that is a superpower. So let's get into it. Talk to us about true versus false anxiety. Yes, the central thesis of my book. So um, I have to give credit and honor to Julia Ross, who wrote the book, The Mood Cure. And she opened my eyes to this concept. You're you're familiar with it. Yeah, she's she's basically like, we have our real moods. That's when something happened and we're Mm -hmm. in a mood as a result. But then we have our false moods where suddenly out of nowhere, we're irritable, we're sad, we're anxious, we're angry. And our brain is all too happy to swoop in with an explanation, right? Our brains are meaning makers. Give us two dots and a line and it says, I see a face. And give our body a stress response. It tracks up to the brain. We feel under duress. And our brain says, well, I'm anxious because that email I got from my boss that makes me feel like I might be underperforming at work or that relationship with an old friend that's feeling a little tense and something's not right there or the state of the world. And so we swoop in with a story to explain physical sensations. But what's actually happening, if we could omnisciently really peek into the body, that's a state of physical imbalance in that moment. And what's what's happening is that whether it's a blood sugar crash or we're sleep deprived or we had an extra coffee that day or we're hungover or we're inflamed or we ate something we don't tolerate or we're B12 deficient, um, something is getting the body out of balance. It's tracking up to the brain as a stress response. Um, and we feel uneasy and we label that anxiety and that's, that's fine. Except what's important to me is that we understand the true root cause because that's our path out. And I think that when we're in a state of false anxiety, I actually don't think that anxiety serves us or serves the world. I think it's unnecessary suffering. So Mm. false anxiety, it's avoidable anxiety. It has a physical basis and there's a straightforward path out, but we just need all of this education around what are the root causes of false anxiety? How do we identify them and address them in our lives? Important caveat, I don't call it false to invalidate the incredibly real suffering that it causes. I was in a state of false depression for a number of years. That was life altering suffering. Um, It just turns out for me, it had to do with the birth control pill and gluten and not the fundamental problems in my interpersonal life. And so that's the false anxiety piece. True anxiety, very much on the other hand, is not something that we can gluten-free or decaf coffee our way out of. It's, um, it's an inner compass, and it's not something we should be pathologizing. It's here with an important call to action baked into it, and it's basically nudging us. It's saying, slow down, pay attention. There's something here in your personal life, in your community, in the world at large that you know is not right. And you have a unique perspective and a unique set of gifts, and you have a contribution to make here. And so, you know, a gentle, sometimes gentle nudge. Sometimes it's like, I've been ignored far too long. I'm shouting now. But it's basically there to tell us, um, slow down. You know, things not right here. Please take steps accordingly. 
And so I think of that as purposeful anxiety. Okay. So what about the idea that, and Mags and I talk about this a lot and maybe, maybe we shouldn't be, but what we have been talking about is the idea that our amygdala as our sort of lookout for our body and brain and the early warning system, so to speak, along in part in cahoots with the hypothalamus and a bunch of other regions misfires or is too sensitive, you know, and maybe perceives danger or threat to our survival where it doesn't exist, but it's that perception. And that might put us into a fight, flight, or freeze state. So how does that fit in with your paradigm? Ah, yes. The limitations of any nomenclature system. So I think think of sort of limbic, call it um, excessive activation as primarily, well, it really, it does fit into both categories and depends on what's going on. So there is a true anxiety component to it. And that speaks to what we were were saying a minute ago, that some of our highly sensitive folks are here in a prophetic capacity. I I sort of cite this research in the book, um, a woman named Diane Fossey who studied primates and she looked at chimps and she looked at tribes of chimps and she noticed that there were anxious types and they were sleeping less. They were out on the periphery of the tribe. They were like this early warning system. And mm-hmm. she removed the anxious chimps from a tribe and the whole tribe was dead six months later. And so basically they, it's not fun necessarily to be the sensitive ones who don't sleep well on the outskirts being like elephant stampede is coming, but um, they're critical to the collective survival. So I think some of our limbic excessive activation is who we're here to be and a role we're here to serve. I do think that we can reduce suffering by not shaming ourselves and not shaming others for it and by embracing it, seeing it as a gift. I think a really helpful way of looking at it is it's a harder path, but it's a higher calling. But I think there is a false anxiety component to limbic excessive activation as well. And even false doesn't feel like the right term. But when we're talking about unmetabolized, unhealed trauma, we basically have a limbic system almost with the foot stepped on the accelerator pedal. And that's where I think that there is therapeutic intervention indicated where we can work with the limbic system at the level of the body, at the level of the limbic system, not at the talky-talky therapy level, but through treatments like EMDR or somatic experiencing therapy, or I send a lot of patients for DNRS, dynamic neural retraining system. That's where I think we can just help that person's limbic system not only exist in the foot on the gas pedal state, and be in a little bit more of a flexible dynamic with um, when is there a real threat to be perceived and when can we say that's just a rustle in the leaves, it's not a leopard. Can you talk to us about GABA? Oh, I'd love to talk about GABA. Right now, the public conversation about mental health, we primarily focus on one of many neurotransmitters, which is serotonin. Serotonin's great. I'm all about serotonin, Mm -hmm. but it's not the only player in our anxiety and our mental health in general. And yeah, we started talking about dopamine too, but GABA is still a little bit underappreciated. It is our primary inhibitory neurotransmitter in the central nervous system. Translation is that in the brain and spinal cord, it's the neurotransmitter that is able to tell an anxious spiral, shh, it's okay. We're going to be okay. So basically, we really want juicy, healthy GABA modulation in our brain. And modern life makes a broad assault on GABA. It's somewhat of an endangered species in modern life. Um, so what happens is part of how we manufacture GABA is actually from bacterial species in our digestive tract particular bacteroides species, 
And of course, in modern life where we're not exposed to dirt and the microbes from there and secretly the microbes from animal feces as well as part of what we're missing in modern life. And then we take antibiotics and drink chlorinated tap water and we don't have a habit of eating fermented foods. All of this combines to make us have diminished populations of these beneficial bacteria. So a lot of us are just missing the microbes that help us produce and manufacture GABA. And then modern life also compromises GABA with some of our substances, and we get into a vicious cycle with GABA functioning. So two substances in particular, the benzodiazepines like Xanax, Ativan, Clonopin, um, they, and, and alcohol are both basically GABAergic drugs. And what they do is they take our anxious, frayed nerves and they rush them in GABA. And so we feel better. It's a big warm hug. We feel like, ah, the thing I was so worked up about, I don't care so much about it anymore. And we feel confident and relaxed and we can fall asleep and go to a social function or do a public speaking engagement. And that's all well and good. I have no moral qualms with this whatsoever, mm -hmm. but the brain is not interested in whether or not we're relaxed. It is interested in our survival. That's its primary objective. So it is seeing this rush of GABA and it's thinking must restore homeostasis. And so both of these create a vicious cycle where we need the substance to get back to a state of feeling like we have sufficient GABA functioning in our brain. What are things that help us be sensitive to our GABA or be able to like feel that more is available in general? Sure. Yeah. And to generally restore healthy functioning. Um, I think about this a lot with my patients. It's a little different for all of us. You can't go wrong with nutrition. Nutrition matters because we just need the raw materials to rebuild GABA receptors, to rebuild GABA. For many of us, we need healthy fats for that. I would argue a lot of us need things like really nutrient-dense foods like egg yolks or chicken liver pate, organ meats for some people, red meat. And then um, a beneficial, sort of a diverse ecosystem of beneficial bacteria in the gut. So consuming fermented foods, alongside starchy tubers, sweet <laughs> potatoes, plantains, taro, yucca, white potatoes, but that gets more complex. I can get into the weeds about all of this stuff, but um, overall, that's a really good way to repopulate with beneficial bacteria. And then rest can never be um, you know, overstated. Rest is how our brains heal. It's how our bodies heal. And it is how we just exist in a state of good GABA functioning. There's also a lot that we can do to just sort of juice up our parasympathetic or relaxation response in general, which I'm convinced also supports GABA healing. And that can look like so many things, yoga, meditation, um, yoga nidra or progressive muscle relaxation. You could do cold showers or cold water plunging. You can mm. um, sort of stimulate the vagus nerve with chanting or gargling. Um, there's so much we can do to just help um, nudge our bodies to spending more time in our relaxation response. And I'm convinced that that does help dig the grooves in the direction of better GABA functioning as well. What is your stance on antidepressants like a Prozac or a Zoloft or an SNRI like Effexor in terms of managing anxiety? So nuanced thoughts on meds. <laughs> so let's get into it. Roll up our sleeves. Um, I'll say first and foremost, I, I know that just the very fact that I call meds into question at all is such a triggering sensitive topic. It's such a sacred cow. So I need to be so clear. Um, there are people for whom meds are the path, that they're helpful, they're effective, they get the job done, they create a bridge. Um, when that's the case, I am absolutely the cheerleader of that. 
Um, so I am not dogmatically or philosophically opposed to psych meds um, writ large. When they are the path for somebody, I rejoice. Um, I was talking to a patient just earlier today. She, after a long time of working with holistic strategies to support her OCD, she just started Luvox about three months ago, and it's been really wonderful. And we celebrated the fact that her brain is a lock that has a key. And so the fact that Luvox works as a key and really helps her achieve um, better symptom management, it's great. That said, there are millions of people for whom the existing state of mental health is not sufficiently meeting their needs. All you other people for whom meds haven't been the key, whether they were working initially and then they stopped working or you experienced side effects or you have a contraindication, whatever the case may be, for whoever has felt demoralized by their journey in the psychiatry field, they feel chewed up and spit out and that there wasn't the answers there and they feel hopeless. I am here to say, I see you and there's hope for you also that medications are a great path if that's your path, but if it's not your path, there's so much more we can do. Mm -hmm. And that's where I just want those folks to know that your mental health issues are not entirely a Lexapro deficiency disorder. They might in your case, the fact that that didn't work is our biggest indication that they're not. Um, in your case, they might be inflammation or they might be a hormonal imbalance or a thyroid issue or a nutrient mm -hmm. deficiency um, they might be chronic sleep deprivation from sleep apnea. There's so many different potential root causes. And I want those people to know that we're not giving up, that there's so much that we can do to address their suffering. The one thing I'll say that's like a little bit more controversial is that when we go to meds first, we, I don't think of it as an elegant solution. I have a bit of a compulsive need to match up what is the true root cause of somebody's suffering? Address that and sort of identify that and address that. And when we just throw meds at every problem as our first line for everybody, I think we're treating a lot of thyroid conditions with Lexapro. I think we're treating a lot of inflammation with Lexapro. I want to treat the people who truly their brain needs Lexapro with Lexapro. And I want to treat the inflamed people with an anti-inflammatory program. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of people who write to us who have not had good experience with medications for whatever reason, whether their side effects were so bad or whether they just didn't help. I think part of the problem, and I know you can't solve this on your own, but I think part of the problem is, first of all, a lot of people who get medication don't do it from a psychiatrist at all. They do, they go to their primary care physician. In so much of this country, there's a real dearth of psychiatrists. And even where there's not a dearth of psychiatrists, they're not holistic, but also sometimes, you know, they're expensive for many people without insurance or even with insurance to go to. So there's all these different layers of issues going on. So like it makes the medication issue so very complicated. What you bring up, it's, it's another, it's another reason why I wrote the book is that, um, you know, Psychiatry right now, it's expensive, it's inaccessible, mm -hmm. even if you can afford it and you live somewhere where there are psychiatrists, the good ones have wait lists, aren't taking new patients. And this was after you overcame the fact that you were so anxious, it was hard to make that first phone call, or you're so depressed, it was hard to get out of bed and shower, let alone call a psychiatrist or do the process of figuring out through word of mouth who is good. Um, yes. There's so many barriers and obstacles. And even if you jump over 15, 
at the end of the day, you still might not find a good fit. And so I, I do feel motivated to let people know that there is a lot we can do to support ourselves. And it's, it's, it's touchy because some people really need professional help. You know, I'm a psychiatrist. Like I, I, I I'm, I'm on board with that. And I think mm-hmm. some people really need to be working with me and with my colleagues, but, um, there's a lot that we can do for ourselves. And sometimes that can just make enough incremental improvement that it's really impactful on our quality of life. And so it's not necessarily the whole recipe for some people, but the diet and lifestyle interventions are safe. They're affordable. They're accessible. They're things we can do for ourselves starting today. And we don't necessarily have to wait eight weeks to get in to see the one psychiatrist who responded to our phone call. Mm. We've been really honest with our community about what turned us off personally to most anxiety books on the market. Uh, The first is that they tend to believe that one size fits all. And we love that you don't assume that, that you say over and over in your book that everyone is different, that one size does not fit all. You agree with us that one size may not fit the same person two days in a row. So that's something that we really salute, even though sometimes some of the things that you offer as, as possible roots of agency to managing the anxiety are hard and scary for us because they may be related to diet, which is very triggering for me and Mags being also eating disorder sisters. So definitely our first reaction to your book was excitement for all of the agency that you promote because that's our big thing, but then a little fear because some of the things that you suggest are scary. But here's the second thing about your book that we love, and that is that despite the wealth of suggestions and ideas and science-based strategies and techniques, you manage to not be prescriptive and you don't create a list of shoulds. In fact, you advise your readers to approach your book as they would a buffet. I love when you say, serve yourself what you're drawn to. And perhaps that's why I was so excited to get you on this show, because I am terrified of changing my diet, but truly believe in my gut, so to speak, that that is something that I need to be doing, that that would be really helpful in my own anxiety struggles, that I believe that that's a big root cause for me as a blood sugar issue. So um, I just wanted to give you that compliment and also to tell our community, it's safe to read this book. It's not going to tell you what you should do. It's going to give you lots of ideas, places to explore and inquire. And it's the kind of book that I think you could read over and over at different points in your journey and find different things each time that would appeal to you. Thank you. And you can see this feedback is is actually really making me emotional because that was what was really scary to me about writing a book is that it's terrifying to me to just have 200 and whatever it is, 250 pages of mm-hmm. um, here is my approach to anxiety, run with it, and to not be able to drive that manual transmission with my readers. But I, my hope was in in laying it out as a buffet and saying like, you're going to know for yourself what resonates, what you want to absolutely skip over. Um, I was really hopeful that somehow it comes across as um, a little bit more bespoke where somebody can figure out this is what resonates. This is the right way for me to get a takeaway from this book. And and also people know when it's not right for them. Like when Mm -hmm. there's going to be sections that are going to be actively unhelpful for some people. And my hope is that, um, that I've empowered them to feel they have permission to skip. Thank you so much for joining us. Once again, the book is The Anatomy of Anxiety, Understanding and Overcoming the Body's Fear Response. You can find a link to it in our show notes and anywhere you buy books. And once again, I'm going to gush. It's a must read. Anxiety Sisters, get this book.
it's been an honor and this has been such a delightful conversation. You guys bring so much value to this space and I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you for having me on. Announcements. As you know, we'd love if you take a look at our book, The Anxiety Sister Survival Guide. You can listen to it. You can get it in paperback or you can get it on Kindle. If you listen to it, you can hear us talking for so many hours. Yes. I, bet that's, I bet that's exciting. <laughs> Find us on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, sort of. I do, I'm back to checking Twitter. And on our website, www.anxietysisters.com. And please, if you have feedback, especially compliments, questions, or an idea for a podcast, please email us. Um, and if you're enjoying our podcasts, we would be so appreciative if you left us a review. It's really, really helpful for us. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, anxiety, sisters, sisters don't go it alone. alone. <laughs> okay. You've been listening to The Spin Cycle, an Anxiety Sisters production. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved.